ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. This is Ignition. Welcome to Ignition, a radio show and podcast for the new evangelization. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald. And I'm Father Andrew Dickinson. And if, you, if you've ever listened to the show before, you know that in the opening we, we mention time after time after time uh, that we just love listener feedback. Uh, but if it's your first time listening to the show, you've never heard it. Exactly. So we're going to tell you we do love listener feedback. Um, if, if you have any questions about the things we'll be discussing today in, in this episode, if you go online, listen to past episodes, have any questions about things we've said in the past, if you have an ideas, topics that you'd like us to cover in future episodes, questions. We're going to be doing a Q&A episode uh, uh, soon. Um, if you have questions that you want us to answer, whether they're maybe quick hitter or something more in-depth or detailed, uh, let us know. And the best way to do that is by emailing me, Chris, at my email address, cbergwald at sfcatholic.org, C-B-U-R-G-W-A-L-D at sfcatholic.org. I, I, I suppose if they followed uh, online on Twitter, at your Twitter handle, or the SF Diocese uh, Twitter handle, they could uh, tweet questions with a hashtag, hashtag of ignition. Yeah, that'd be great. So uh, my Twitter handle is um, Chris Bergwald, C-H-R-I-S-B-U-R-G-W-A-L-D. Um, Father mentioned already the diocesan uh, Twitter handle, SF Diocese. Uh, so those will be some ways. Some of you might already be following Father Dickinson. So um, if you want to tweet him the questions as well. Um, what was the hashtag again, Father, to use? Ignition. Ignition. That's our name. That's our name. <laughs> How about that? Uh, is anybody else using the hashtag, Father? Have you checked? No, but I mean, if they tweet at us with that hashtag, we'd uh, be okay. You, you are correct. See, father is father is a Twitter veteran. He knows what he's doing. He's he's not I an amateur. Twitter he, handle. It's he's not <laughs> he's not an amateur when it comes to Twitter. Uh, well, you don't get paid for it though. No, so I am an amateur. I guess. I guess you are. Um, with that inane banter out of the way, Father, let's get into today's topic. <laughs> yes, which will be actually somewhat. Uh, uh, well, it's not so much of a topic. It's well, it is something of a topic. Father, I can talk today about um, summer uh, reading. Some some ideas. Well, summer or any time of the year, books that we've read recently, uh, maybe in the summer, that that you might consider things that we uh, might want to recommend, or maybe just uh, interesting books to discuss for the sake of our our um, our conversation and your listening. So, can we called it the Reading Rainbow Edition. Of ignition. So, so what would that be like, Father? Well, take a look. It's in a book, Reading Rainbow. I'm not going to sing the theme because it might have a copyright. <laughs> well, I know how the theme goes, but what 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 an ignition? Oh, never mind. Never mind. The inane banter part of the show is supposed to be over already. Never over in my mind. No, that's 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 certainly true. So, Father, um, I'm going to let you lead off um, uh, with a, a book of uh, theological substance. Yeah. Uh, so this book was recommended to me uh, by a alum from SDSU. Go big, go blue, go Jacks. And we've been in the practice. Of that's Sa- that's San Diego State, right? Is that oh? I, well, interestingly enough, this alum now does live in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, so. Uh, within the practice of giving our alum uh, a book at graduation, a gift from us, usually something kind of fun, uh, some of the John Zmirak books, uh, The Bad Catholic's Guide to Wine, Whiskey, and Song, yes. or The Catholic's Guide to Good Living, or uh, just kind of some fun books. 
but an alum contacted and said, hey, uh, Father, if you haven't found a book for this year, uh, I read this book and it's really good and I'd love to donate some. And so I was very interested for that uh, reason. Uh, but it's a book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petrie, uh, spelled exactly like it doesn't sound, uh, P-I-T-R-E, Petrie. Is that a good joke? E- no. Okay. Uh, but a uh, really good book. I may, and actually, I might have just... Is that how the name is actually said? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's pronounced Petrie. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but then I've enjoyed it very much, and you said you've read it before. Yeah, I read. Yeah, well, I'll let you talk first, and then I'll chime in. But yes, I've read it before. Yeah, and, and so he, what he does is he goes through and looks at uh, different things that were uh, Old Testament or Jewish concerns, Jewish mentality, Jewish mindsets at the time of Jesus preaching, teaching at the time of the institution of the Eucharist, and to dive into those realities to help us better understand uh, the Eucharist that Jesus gave us. Uh, so he's going through and uh, looking at uh, the idea of the Messiah, and of course we all know Jesus is the Messiah, but you know, what did first century Jews look uh, look for and think of when they were looking for and thinking of the Messiah? And what did a Eucharist or a manna have anything to do with that? And, and the Passover as well, and what did they think of in regards to the Passover and the Passover land? So what, did Jesus, what was Jesus referring to in some of these things? So it's really been a fun read for myself in that. Yeah, I was really uh, taken by it um, my, myself as well, especially diving into, well, two things in particular, going deep into the Old Testament, showing how the, 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 the Eucharist that, that Jesus inaugurated on Holy Thursday was prefigured for centuries before. So it's the, it's the culmination of seeds that, that God had been planting um, uh, among his people uh, for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. It didn't, the Eucharist, Jesus didn't create the Eucharist out of a vacuum. Very much it, it comes out, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist comes out of deep-seated roots um, among among the people of Israel. The other thing, in addition to that, um, uh, the, the the contemporary, the first century historical uh, data that we have access to do through the writings of, for instance, the Jewish historian Josephus and so on, about how things you, you, and you alluded to this already, but how things were, how people, the Jews of the first century believed what they believed about the Messiah, um, how they practiced the Passover, um, and so on. some of those historical details are just fascinating to me. Right, and one of the ones that I wanted to share in particular was he was talking about uh, the Our Father. Now, of course, the Our Father is unique because it's the only prayer that Jesus teaches them, the only time he teaches them a full prayer. Uh, but secondly, in there, there's a reference to, of course, daily bread. We all know the Our Father, I hope. Yes. Give us today our daily bread. And you know, why is there this repetition of day? give us this day our daily bread. Well, of course, this day you're giving us daily bread. But what does that mean? And he goes into the Greek, which is really neat, and uh, you may not be a Greek scholar at home. I certainly am, but I I found the way he presented it very accessible. Uh, Looking at the word, give us this day our epiousios bread. This word, epiousios, which is kind of fun to say if you're in a car all alone, (laughs) uh, go ahead and say that word out loud. Uh, But epiousios... Um, different than uh, the word for daily, which is hamarot in, uh, in Greek. It's a different word. And so, and in fact, this word is a brand new word that isn't used ever until this prayer in the New Testament, epi- epiusios, hmm. uh, which is kind of cool. 
It is. Uh, they call it a neologism, a new word, uh, which is a Greek, an, an English transliteration of a Greek word meaning new word. There we go. Anyway, so epiousios, he says the word really, you know, the, uh, the different ways to look at it, and he's proposing the word epiousios should mean uh, above uh, our substance, or super substantial, supernatural bread. So Jesus is telling us to pray, give us this day our supernatural bread. Now, for Jews, what was supernat- supernatural bread? Asking you a biblical question. Uh, are, are you asking? Oh, oh, that's not a that's not a rhetorical question, Father. No, I want a real answer. Oh, yeah, oh. I'm not you a rhetorical rhetorical doctor. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I might be. Um, could it be the manna? The manna from heaven. Yes, the bread from heaven. Manna from heaven. Right? So, uh, Epiusios, give us this day our supernatural bread, our supernatural bread. So, very much a reference to manna in that way. And so, he's talking about us praying for new manna from God. Well, then, when does he actually give new manna? In the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. This becomes new, uh, the new manna. There's also great connections with the idea of the new manna from heaven, because, of course, the manna, the first manna from heaven, fed uh, the Jewish people in their exile, moving from uh, 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 the Red Sea to the Holy Land in their wandering in the desert. We are the chosen people of God uh, by baptism, expanding the covenant of Abraham to the whole world, and we are moving from the slavery of sin to the promised land of heaven, in our own desert wandering, our pilgrim life, uh, and we need this daily bread, this uh, epiusios bread, this super substantial bread to sustain us in our wandering. Hmm. Pretty cool. It is cool. Yeah. And it's in the catechism if you'd ever decided to read it. It's in the catechism, the whole thing? It is. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, I'm, and for, I'm, I'm giving Father a hard time there, but there are so many little gems that you know we, we, we miss or, or we don't catch. Um, for those of you keeping score at home, it's in the catechism 2837. Uh, a, a good discussion of, of Epiusios daily and, and what it means in our Father and saying exactly what Father Dickinson has just been talking about. Thanks for sharing that with me on the prep for this. Well, yeah, I, I, did, I, I didn't think about it then, Father. <laughs> um, just one line, Father. Again, this is just reiterating everything you were just saying. Um, this is from 2837. Taken literally, epiousios, super essential, it refers directly to the bread of life, the body of Christ, the medicine of immortality, quoting St. Ignatius of Antioch. <clears throat> Excuse me. Without which we have no life in us, and it, and it goes on uh, to say a couple of other very nice things as well. But uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's just you know, Father, we, we say this prayer. Many of us are taught it when we're young, and we're daily bread, and we think about you know the gifts that God gives us and so on. But we we're not often. Uh, w- w- most of us aren't aware of of that connection to the Eucharist. Right. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. But apparently you knew it all along in the catechism, so don't buy Brent Petrie's book, don't help a <laughs> Catholic scholar, just read 28, whatever the rest that you read. 30, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it is. I, as I said already, I think it's a fantastic book where, where gems like this, again, which might be hidden or buried within the catechism, he does a great job of, of bringing these things to light. Right. So... Anything else? Uh, well, no, let's move on. No, uh, no, nothing else unless you have something else in the catechism that you want me to reference in that way. No, I have nothing else in the catechism. Okay.
I don't think I'll have anything else in the catechism for this next book that you're going to talk about either. So, so be, don't worry. I won't. Uh, I won't do that again to you. At least this episode. All right. So, are you on to my other book? Yes, please. Okay. Unless there's anything else you want to steal, I'm okay. I'm recovering. <laughs> yes, because it was because it was your I, idea I, I and not. I'm very poor not, right now. I feel very poor right now. Oh, this, well, that's good. I'm. 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 I'm uh, giving you an I opportunity. Feel, I, I feel miserable. Oh boy. Well. <laughs> so I, I, uh, and just so happens that I'm reading Victor Hugo's <laughs> Les Miserables. <laughs> Very smooth. Okay. Professional here. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, for some summer fun reading. I don't know how fun it is. It's 1,400 pages. But some non theological reading. I'm reading uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right at all. I think you are. Okay. And uh, so I've uh, uh, never read this before. I saw the movie uh, came out a couple years ago. Uh, now inside, I and actually bought the book to read it. Started reading it last summer and got maybe a hundred. I didn't even get a hundred pages. I got like fifty pages in, and I gave up. I said, "Uncle." Been there, done now, that. Yeah, so I've done that many a times. Can't tell you how many times I did that to uh, Pope John Paul II's uh, Love and Responsibility. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, but now I'm actually like, getting into it and enjoying it very much. So, so for those of you who haven't seen the movie or or maybe the musical, I, I did several years ago, about uh, thirteen years ago or so. I saw the the traveling Broadway performance of the musical Les Miserables, which is how I think most people who have who have heard of this story, probably most people, far more people have seen the musical than read the novel. At least today, I'm guessing. Did you uh, go on your own or with your wife? Uh, what with my wife? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't, uh, and to some degree, well, I, I was was definitely not a, really into musicals at all, but I was very moved by Les Mis when I saw it. So it definitely opened me up to uh, to the possibility that musicals might actually be enjoyable. Just so there's no Rodgers and Hammerstein involved. Oh, come on. Sound of music? Are you kidding me? Yeah. <sighs> Okay. Anyway, so but so for those maybe who haven't seen the movie or the musical, give us a, a, a short plot summary if you can, Father. Fourteen hundred pages. <laughs> the, the, the book is about the miserable ones, the the poor, the downtrodden, and their uh, struggle to live in society and in a societal system, a class system, and a legal system that doesn't uh, allow much for change and uh, doesn't allow much for uh, the miserable ones uh, to grow and succeed. Okay. And uh, so there's a character that's focused on the protagonist to be Jean Valjean, uh, who is uh, himself was uh, sent to prison for stealing bread to try and feed his starving sister and her children. Uh, and then his efforts after being uh, sent out of prison to try and uh, reform his life. Uh, but uh, he has slip-ups and... Uh, there is a police inspector, Javert, who seeks to bring him down, uh, and his, uh, his own efforts to, to try and live that good life together with a uh, young girl he adopts as his own, essentially named Cosette, uh, and other characters along the way. Okay. How's that? That's a good summary. the backdrop of uh, the French uh, revolutions, counter-revolutions, restorations of the monarchy, and things like that. And I really don't know the history of Right. So, so this is the setting. Uh, the French Revolution um, began, at least, in, in 1789. So the setting is uh, different parts of Paris, uh, France, but especially Paris in the late 18th century. 
And he has like this 80-page uh, uh, historical description of Waterloo, which I know of Waterloo, but I know nothing about Waterloo. Right, right. Other than, so just, well, you, you can look it up online, but Waterloo is this defining battle between Napoleon and Lord Wellington, and uh, Napoleon's first real defeat, um, uh, which is the beginning of the end for him. Yep. So. Which actually wasn't fought in the city of Waterloo, but that's another story. Another story. Uh, but what's really striking me about the book that I wanted to share with you uh, listeners is Victor Hugo, even though himself uh, was not a practicing Christian or Catholic, still writes from a very Catholic culture and perspective. And so there's some real beautiful things about the souls and the, and, and the, and the persons uh, of these characters. These characters are more than just what they do and what they look like. That there's this whole other place of drama, which is... Uh, their own uh, inner life and their own inner struggles and the struggles of conscience. So, can we can we in unpacking that kind of like start with the, the sort of the, the the premise or what you alluded to initially there when you're what you just said about how even though he wasn't a, a practicing Catholic, even a, a Christian um, at at the point when in this point in his life when he wrote the novel, um, he still his writing the story still imbues very Catholic Christian concepts. So the idea the the, the term that you had used um, the the others have used Christ. Haunted. So even though he's not doesn't consider himself a Christian, he's not a practicing Christian, practicing Catholic. Um, his his story is still Christ haunted. So, could you? What does that mean when we when people speak that way? Well, just that it's still if there's still uh, Christian ideas and ideals and, and world vision. Like, how do I look at another person? Because he as an author is looking at people and describing people. And so the, that Christian Rogan vision is still a part of how he looks at his characters, how he creates his characters, how he portrays his characters, and how he portrays their decisions and their actions. So it's one time a, a census taker asked uh, Hugo if he was a, a, a Catholic. He said, "No, I'm a free thinker." So he denied being Christian, and yet those the ideas that he inherited, being raised Catholic, uh, still found their way into his his literary works. And I think deliberately. I mean, I, I'm assuming deliberately so um, that he deliberately still embraced these ideas and understandings, uh, but just sought to do them without. Uh, God or the Church. Right, right. Uh, so, like, one of the beautiful examples, just to move our conversation along in that way, would be in the story uh, where Jean Valjean is having his conversion. And uh, he, he's, of course, as we all do, kind of opposing his conversion. There's that inner wrestling that goes on uh, within ourselves, and it just, just this one little sentence is just very beautiful. This is after the Bishop uh, of Digne has uh, blessed him and said to him, uh, I have purchased your soul from the spirit of perdition and give it to God. There's this struggle going on in Jean Valjean. It says, In opposition to this celestial tenderness, he summoned up pride, the fortress of evil in man. So this whole idea of, you know, that this character is summing up his pride, his dignity. How dare he give me this charity and things like this? You know, doesn't he know that I've been hurt or I've got rights and pride? I'm hiding behind pride to try and protect my appetite for evil. Well, his very appetite for evil is being melted by this kindness done to him by this uh, uh, bishop. Does hmm. that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. That's why I say it's very Catholic and christ 
So it's it's definitely um, again you, you could just you don't have to you wouldn't have to read the novel to know this the the, the basics of the plot line. But there it's it's very much a novel of redemption, um, working itself out in all sorts of ways, all sorts of characters throughout the novel, including uh, definitely including um, Jean Valjean himself. Very much so. And, and, and the power that can, and and the power and the goodness that can come forth from a redeemed soul. And even okay, again, again, I I, I like you uh, in the past. I've I've never completed uh, Les Mis. I've I've started at least once. I got about as far as I think you did last summer, about a hundred or so pages into it, which I is mean, still I didn't get the triple digits last summer. Okay, so I I didn't get very far and, and put it down. And I think we've talked in the past. I think about another uh, novel also from the nineteenth century uh, by a Russian author, Fyodor Dostoevsky. His brother, his his magnum opus, uh, Brothers Karamazov. Um, I eventually did finish that one, but same thing, these massive novels that took me at least a few attempts before I ended up completing them. So we're not a message, we're not a message broadcast, but if we did have a message, it would be, don't be afraid to pick up a book you sat down. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Actually, our message broadcast with <laughs> Anything else from your uh, ongoing reading of Les Mis that you think is worth sharing? No, I thought that was just a nice little bit. So I, um, th- there were two things. I don't forget to both though, and, and that's just fine. Um, t- two two books um, that I've read that that I want to talk about. But one of them, and I'm not going to recommend. I'll tell you the the book, um, uh, but it, I'm not recommending it. It's just an interesting item for conversation. Is the book Hashtag not recommended? Not recommended. Um, the novel is the, it's a trilogy, young adult trilogy. The first first book in the trilogy is called The Maze Runner, and this book came to my attention because I saw shocking a trailer for the movie a, a few months ago um, so this is another and we're going to talk here about uh, young adult dystopias a very exciting topic on ignition today um, it, but it's another uh, s- book series being made into a movie um, which is it targeted the books at least um, targeted at the young adult crowd so so teens in particular um, but with a dystopian setting so the 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 trailer was was Sorry, say again. So, uh, as I was, so, so the, 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 um, the trailer was intriguing to me, so it compelled me to, to check out the first novel in the series, read it, I'm done, I read the plot summaries for the second and third ones online, just because I was curious enough to happen with the story, but it's, it's a little too, it's a little dark for me, uh, not quite worth reading um, the the follow-up volumes in the trilogy. Um, but it, what's, what's interesting to me, Father, and, and what I think is maybe worth discussing um, uh, for Ignition, is just... This recent trend, fad, perhaps, um, in young adult dystopias. So the, these these books or book series, um, which have teens particularly in mind as their audience, um, which have a dystopian setting. So a dystopia as opposed to a utopia. So a utopia is um, an ideal civilization where everything is perfectly, you know, basically sinless life. Um, a dystopia is the opposite of that. Um, despair, dark. Oftentimes hopeless. Um, at least that's the general setting for society or culture or, or whatever the, the the civilization unit might be um, in, in the novel. So, Father, over the last, you know, the Hunger Games is is probably the most well known example in, in this genre uh, of late. Uh, but there are other examples as of, as well. 
of of books that are dystopian in nature and just uh, any thoughts why do you think that's compelling to people why why is this why are books like this selling millions and millions of copies any conjecture speculation on your part um well if there's no lawyer to object i think uh, well one thing it, it, re- it reflects uh uh the culture that we're in that we're becoming uh less and less christian less and less christ haunted as a culture um, and the sense that we're becoming more and more uh, a part of a um, uh, movement against, or just uh, we've lo- we've lost the presence of Christ. Right, and and that's and, and and it's working itself out even in in the arts. Well, it has been in all sorts of ways in, in the arts um, for decades now. But now it's getting to the point where even pop pop culture is reflecting that absence or that lost loss. Correct, correct, and and even more so that not just that pop culture is reflecting it, but uh, the consumers of pop culture uh, are finding it that it resonates with them, or they're not finding that anything's missing. Right, right. We're not, we're not like, well, what is this? Is really um, despairing and um, and and dreary and and so on. Well, I'm not going to read this. No, you're right. It's resonating with again millions of millions of copies of these books are being sold. Millions of tickets are being sold to see the movies based on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that means that it's finding a market. It might be kind of and and the I think an important point to make it's not what makes a dystopia a dystopia is not that there is struggle and suffering and pain um, that's that's Les Mis has plenty of that but it's right. this idea that there is no hope there is no realistic expectation that whether in this life or the next that all of this will be behind us so definitely a contrast with something like Les Mis right well and, and also to this dystopia in the sense that uh, you you think you're going to find or something appears to be a perfect culture, but it's not. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, well, that's kind of go, that goes back to the classic dystopian novels of uh, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley himself, an atheist, uh, or uh, 1984 by George Orwell, another atheist. This idea that uh, uh, we could cr- that we might have what appears to be a perfect world, a utopia, but it turns out in reality, when you scratch the surface, it's not. Uh, a perfect world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, Father, that's where I think, you know, whatever the intentions of the authors or the movie makers of these uh, dystopias, I, I, I do think it's an evangelical moment for us in the sense that this there is an opening here um, for us to, into which we can proclaim Christ and his gospel. Um, that, that, that even though we might, uh, this resonates with us because this describes our experience, there is more to life than this. What do you think about that? Well, very much so. That, that there is an opportunity there, and, um, uh, and and the more that people don't know Christ, and then they lose maybe that inoculation to Him, uh, uh, inoculation that's seen the weaker version, so I can resist the stronger version. Uh, that that opportunity is there. Exactly. So this isn't so much necessarily, again, a, uh, a recommendation on my part, but just drawing attention to the fact that this is a phenomenon in, in both the publishing world and the movie world um, that, that we can maybe take advantage of and, and point out how in our own experience, share with others, you know, this does not resonate with me because I do have hope just in the midst of my sufferings um, and, and so on, that there is hope for me. Um, and so with that, we will 
draw this episode of Ignition to a close. Again, if you have questions about anything we've discussed today, any ideas for future episodes, questions about past episodes, email me, cbergwald at sfcatholic.org. C-B-U-R-G-W-A-L-D at sfcatholic.org. You can also find past episodes of Ignition at the diocesan website, sfcatholic.org. Go to the media section and the audio files there, and you'll find them all. Until next time, dear listeners, and mighty God bless you all, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.